Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm here to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. We will be revealing our favorite rating of the month in next week's episode and sending out a free Pop Pantheon niche legend dad hat. So leave your ratings and reviewings. Five-star entries only are considered for the contest. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L O U I E X I V. If you want to cop your own merch, our dad hat and our Mirror Superstar t shirt are available at poppantheonpod.com. And my last piece of housekeeping before we get into this week's episode is that my queer pop party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, LA's Finest, is back on March 25th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. If you want to come, if you're queer, if you're an ally, if you love pop, which I would assume encompasses this entire audience that I'm speaking to, and you are in the broader LA area, please come to Gorgeous Gorgeous March 25th. The ticket link will be in the show notes of this episode. And remember that if you are a Pop Pantheon All Access Patreon subscriber at the Icon tier, you have free access to the guest list. So feel free to DM if you'd like to get on the guest list if you're a Patreon subscriber. And otherwise, see you there. Tickets in the show notes, March 25th, resident downtown Los Angeles. All right. This week's episode is a return to my favorite format of last year, which was our omnibus episodes, episodes where we wrap a bunch of artists together who might not necessarily qualify for their own Pop Pantheon episodes, but feel as though they need to be mentioned. They're part of the pop music firmament and we need to talk about them. And this is our way of doing that. This episode is about four incredibly successful, influential, and frankly, monocultural rap stars turned crossover pop stars from the very tail end of the 90s, but mostly in the early to mid 2000s. We're talking about Ja Rule, Nelly, Ludacris and 50 Cent, artists that really were emblematic of a period where hip-hop and hip-hop stars fully became mainstream pop stars, dominated radio, had the biggest selling albums of the year, streams of hits that seemed endless until they didn't, and then basically all of whom kind of lost their mojo to some degree in the mid-2000s into the late 2000s when pop music once again shifted back towards EDM and the dance floor, but many of whom actually retained some sort of relevant status through the early 2010s. So we get into all of it. It was such a fun episode. This is the music of my childhood. So man, it was like a nostalgia trip up the wazoo. So here is Pop Pantheon, Ja Rule, Nelly, Ludacris, and 50 Cent. Pop is a giant catch-all, a term that can absorb, incorporate, elevate, and even be defined by any other genre that catches the zeitgeist. But no other genre has insinuated itself into mainstream pop more prominently over the last 40 years than hip-hop. Nowadays, pop and hip-hop can seem almost interchangeable. The impact of hip-hop aesthetics are omnipresent in pop. It's almost a rote norm for traditional singers and rappers to collaborate on hits, and rappers themselves operate as some of the biggest capital P pop stars in the world, period. But that hasn't always been the case. The infiltration of hip-hop into centrist pop has been a long gestating project, beginning in the 80s with acts like LL Cool J, Beastie Boys, salt and pepper and Run-DMC, and reaching new heights in the 90s with rap stars who made open plays at the top of the pops, like Biggie, Tupac, Missy Elliott, Snoop Dogg, and Jay-Z. The marriage of pop and hip-hop seemed to reach an initial apex at the turn of the millennium, a moment where pop, R&B, and hip-hop almost felt like one big interchangeable melange. Seemingly every hit was a duet with a pop star and a rapper, and the rappers themselves became commercial forces to rise 
rival or even eclipse their more traditional pop counterparts. Icons like Jay-Z and Missy Elliott defined this epic, but so too did a group of superstars who burned fast and bright and helped to, once and for all, collapse the delineation between rapper and pop star entirely. Ja Rule, Nelly, Ludacris, and 50 Cent. First up, Ja Rule. Born Jeffrey Bruce Adkins in 1975 in Hollis, Queens, Ja began his career as a rapper in the mid-90s as part of erstwhile crew The Cash Money Click, who worked closely with a producer then known as DJ Irv, a visionary who would go on to play an integral role in Ja's later success. Immediately notable for his small stature but gruff and imposing vocal tone, Ja stood out from the group for his sheer chutzpah. And after the group got dropped from their record deal, Irv helped Ja land a solo contract at Def Jam through his new imprint with the label, Murder, Inc. After a series of collaborations with other up-and-comers in the mid-90s like DMX and Jay-Z, Jaws' breakout performance came in 1998 when he guested on and wrote the hook for Jay's hit, Can I Get A? The next year, he dropped his debut solo record, Veni Vedi Vici, produced primarily by Irv, now known as Irv Gotti, and which featured a number of harder gangster rap songs along with the top 40 hit, Holla Holla, a bouncy anthem that began the process of Jaws' eventual pivot towards a more pop-oriented sound. After being encouraged by the label to come up with more radio-friendly material, Jaws' next record, 2000's Rule 336, produced two seminal smashes for the rapper that set the template for his brief but mighty run as a pop hitmaker. The number 11 peaking between between me and you featuring Christina Milian on the hook, and the number eight peaking Put It On Me with Little Mo and Vita. Rap R&B hybrids that offset Jaws' brusqueness with bright, bombastic productions and buttery female vocalists, records honed at cross-market appeal. John Irv took this winning formula and ran all the way to the bank with it over the next couple years, ditching quote-unquote credible gangster rap ambitions for a panoply of fluttery, light pop R&B rap hybrids that paired him with female superstars like Jennifer Lopez on a pair of number one smashes, I'm Real Murder Remix and Ain't It Funny Murder Remix, as well as with his protege Ashanti, a post-Mary J. Blige pop soul singer with whom he collaborated on five more top five singles between 2001 and 2004. For a minute there, Ja Rule was the most omnipresent figure on pop radio, rivaling not just other hip-hop stars of the moment, but also more traditional pop figures like Lopez, Justin Timberlake, and Britney Spears. But just as fast as he'd rose to pop radio dominance, Jaws' star crashed in the middle of the decade when his style of pop-rap duets fell out of favor and his feud with a newer, even bigger crossover superstar, 50 Cent, nuked his cred. More on him to come. Still, his hits endure as definitional emblems of early 2000s pop, no clearer than on his number one smash with Ashanti, the tender thug love anthem, Always On Time. The life we share is a thug. Next up is Nelly. Born Cornell Haynes Jr. in Austin, Texas in 1974, as a teen, Nelly moved with his mother to St. Louis, Missouri, the city his success would put on the map in the rap world. There, he helped form a crew in high school called the St. Lunatics, who became local stars, mostly off the back of their regional hit, 1996's Gimme What You Got. Despite gaining some traction around St. Louis, the group had trouble garnering national attention and decided their best shot at getting a deal would be to choose one of them to go solo. They landed on Nelly, whose laid-back, fun-loving 
charm and formidable rapping skills marked him with star quality. In 1999, Nelly landed a deal with Universal and had already recorded a series of songs that would make him a superstar. This included his debut single, Country Grammar, which blew up organically in early 2000 despite label ambivalence due to the song's trademark nursery rhyme chorus delivered with Nelly's signature irrepressible affability and clever rhymes, which made a drive-by shootout sound like a musical number from Barney and Friends. Nelly's debut album of the same name dropped later that summer and became one of the early century's biggest blockbusters, selling 10 million copies in the U.S. and featuring another two smashes, EI and the number three peaking rags to riches pay on to automobiles ride with me. After a couple memorable guest shots such as on Jagged Edge's smash Where the Party At and NSYNC's Girlfriend remix, Nelly followed up Country Grammar with another juggernaut, 2002's Nellyville. Nellyville featured the back-to-back -back number ones, the party anthem for the ages Hot in Her, and the best rap soul duet of this period, Dilemma, featuring Kelly Rowland, along with the number three hit Air Force Ones. The middle of the decade, however, spelled the beginning of the end for Nelly's seismic pop centrism. His 2004 pair of albums, Sweat and Suit, failed to match the hit parade of his first two records, although the latter did produce the seminal country rap hybrid ballad over and over, featuring Tim McGraw. Through the last 20 years, Nelly has managed to find fluke hits like 2005's Chart Topping Grills, 2010's Just a Dream, and his smash remix of Florida Georgia Line's Cruise. But he never again reached the cultural dominance of his thrilling run of era-defining hits at the onset of the 2000s. Mainstream hip-hop to this point had been largely dominated by the East vs. West Coast dynamic, but artists like Nelly and our next subject, Ludacris, were helping to bust down that binary in this period. Ludacris was born Christopher Bridges in 1977 in Illinois, but moved to Atlanta at age 9. After writing his first raps before he'd even hit puberty, in the late 90s, Ludacris studied music management at Georgia State, interned at the Atlanta radio station Hot 97.5, and appeared on air under the alias Chris Lava Lava. There, he met numerous hip-hop luminaries who would come through the station, including super producer Timberland, who took a liking to him and featured him on a track on his debut album called Fat Rabbit. In 1999, Ludacris recorded and independently distributed his debut album, which would become known as 2000's Back for the First Time. Back for the First Time featured his breakthrough hit, the utterly hilarious, raunchy ode to public sex, What's Your Fantasy, and showcased his nimble and singularly clever skills as a punchline rapper. The single also landed him a deal with Def Jam South, and Back for the First Time tossed off another hit, The Neptunes produced Southern Hospitality, before Luda moved quickly onto his massively successful second record, 2001's Word of Mouth, home to a panoply of diverse sounding and memorable early 2000s radio hits, including Roll Out My Business, Area Codes, Move Bitch, and Saturday Ooh Ooh, all of which presented Ludacris as an amiable, charming, lewd, highly intelligent goofball, a rap cartoon character of sorts. He also began a run as one of the all-time great rap features artists, turning in verses on some of the decade's most memorable hits, including Missy Elliott's One Minute Man and Gossip Folks, Usher's Yeah, Sierra's Oh, Fergie's Glamorous, and so many more. Luda continued to crank out hits on his own, too, through the middle of the decade, releasing three back-to-back number one albums from 03 to 06, and smashes like Stand Up, Splash Waterfalls, Get Back, Pimpin' All Over the World, and Moneymaker. He also became a movie star, acting in hits like the Fast and the Furious franchise. Like most of our subjects today, however, the second half of the 2000s produced diminishing returns for his chart fortunes. Although he scored a couple more hits in the early 2010s with How Low and My Chick Bad featuring Nicki Minaj, as well as a guest first on Justin Bieber's breakthrough smash, Baby. Still, Ludacris is best remembered as the early and mid 2000s ultimate dexterous class class.
finally on our list is perhaps the last great canonical New York gangster rap titan and the artist who both rose the highest and fell the furthest of any of these fellas, 50 Cent. Born Curtis Jackson in South Jamaica, Queens in 1975, 50 began selling crack in middle school and before he'd hit 20 had already served prison time. He began rapping in the mid-90s, adopting the name 50 Cent as a metaphor for change and caught the ear of Run DMC DJ Jam Master J, who helped nurture his skills as a rapper and hook writer. After scoring a deal with Columbia in 1999, 50 recorded his would-be debut album Power of the Dollar, which featured the minor hit How to Rob and presented him as a clever, gleeful villain, fantasizing about how he would mug various rap and hip-hop luminaries. In May 2000, though, 50's career was halted when he was shot nine times outside of his grandmother's home, an incident which by all accounts should have killed him. Power of the Dollar was scrapped and Columbia dropped him, but surviving the shooting gave 50 renewed drive and purpose and, after releasing a series of successful mixtapes through the early 2000s, eventually garnered the attention of superstar Eminem, who instantly took a liking to him and introduced him to Dr. Dre, who in turn signed 50 to his label Aftermath. 50 released his debut album Get Rich or Die Trying in 2003, and off the back of so many years of growing buzz and a monster first single, the Dr. Dre produced club banger In The Club. It debuted with nearly a million copies sold in the first week and went on to produce a fleet of hits, including 21 Questions and PIMP. Get Rich or Die Trying showcased 50's ability to inhabit the roles of menacing gangster, killer hook writer, flirtatious lover boy, and weirdly affecting soul singer, often warping his gravelly voice into memorable melodic turns. It also sold over 12 million copies worldwide and became the biggest selling album of 2003 in the US. He followed that up quickly with a series of hits with his crew G-Unit, as well as guest turns on tracks like Little Kim's number two peaking Magic Stick. His second record, 2005's The Massacre, featured another run of chart toppers including Candy Shop and Just a Little Bit and sold 9 million copies worldwide. Everywhere you turned on pop radio in the mid-2000s, it seemed, there was 50 Cent. But he fell off just as quickly, and by the time he was ramping up to his third album, 2007's Curtis, the air had come out of the balloon. The record produced the rap radio hit I Get Money and a desperate play for another pop hit in the Justin Timberlake featuring AO Technology. But shifting tides in both pop and rap in the latter 2000s spelled the end of 50's run as the biggest star in music. Still, his hits endure, no more so than In the Club, perhaps the single greatest rap crossover song of all here with me to break down the moment when rap fully took center stage in pop music and the careers of Ja Rule, Nelly, Ludacris, and 50 Cent is writer and A&R person Jordan Sargent. Uh-huh. I'm here with A&R person and writer Jordan Sargent. You were one of the first pop pantheon guests ever. We dove into the reedy, seedy, muddy, murky waters of Justin Timberlake together. So it's fun to be back here with you again. I know. And we're talking more or less the same time period, maybe a little bit before, but I found myself thinking about NSYNC and such again. That episode was educational for me. So it's always fun to do these with you. Yeah, same. We're doing like an omnibus episode here on a group of rappers that got extraordinarily popular right around the turn of the millennia and sustained a massive level of what I would call pop stardom because they were huge pop successes in a way that other rappers had set the groundwork for. I think we're going to talk about some of the ways that we got to that place, but tell me what you think about this. I mean, I feel like this period of rapper success and specifically embodied by the people that we're going to talk about today and by Jay and various other bigger figures in the landscape was an apex moment for pop or mainstream pop's embrace of rap music 
as like a central force in pop. Is that an accurate description in your estimation? I think at the outset, <laughs> I should say, I'm basically about to be 35. So this is, I think, similar to you. Yes. Not to age and date ourselves, but... No, I am 36. You're younger than me, so... <laughs> so, you know, this is in my DNA music from just growing up and being a kid in this time. Mm -hmm. Our generation of people were the first ones to grow up where rap was normally in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Some of the first songs I remember are No Diggity, Bone Thugs, How Big the Crossroads Was. That was one of the first CDs I ever bought. Obviously, once you become a fan of the genre, you understand the degree to which it was controversial. But for us, it was just there as all music was. And we're just happened to be on that line based on when we were born. It's just kind of natural for us. But obviously, that was not the case for the entirety of rap, basically up until more or less this point here in the late 90s. This is how I think about it. And maybe I don't have this totally right. But I feel like this was a period and it's a period that we've gone through in the latter part of the 2010s also, where rap took center stage in a way and rappers took center stage in a way as centrist pop figures. Because even when I think back about a Biggie or even like a Run DMC or rappers in the past who had had plenty of crossover success, it still felt like they were coming from a niche genre and having a moment where they were embraced by mainstream radio or embraced by mainstream white audiences, whatever you want to say. Raps obviously had a diverse audience for a long time, but you get the gist of what I'm saying. And I feel like this was a moment where it wasn't like rappers were crossing over occasionally or there was moments where rap had a moment with a big hit song or whatever. This was a moment where rap and rap aesthetics were pop music. Whether you're talking about the rappers that we're talking about today or you're talking about the major pop figures of the moment like Timberlake, Jennifer Lopez, all people that are going to come up on this episode, they were dealing in rap aesthetics themselves and then the rappers themselves were finding themselves having imperial phases of multiple runs of massive hit songs in the same way that a pop star would have in a past era, I guess is what I'm trying to kind of say. Yeah, I mean, there was not really a blueprint for long-term rap stardom at the pop star level. Right. Artists that could have done that were boxed out of that opportunity. We lost Biggie and Tupac, obviously. And those are two stories that obviously we don't know how they would have turned out. But obviously, this conversation is completely different if either of them is alive for a long time. It wasn't really until Jay-Z and Lil Wayne and people like that where we have rappers who have been pop stars for decades. Right. There really was no blueprint. And these artists that we're talking about today obviously didn't really provide that or else they'd be their own episodes. <laughs> but to your point, Nelly and Ludacris, these are artists that debut at the top of the chart. Right. They get big really, really quickly. And like you're saying, there's not really a crossover. They just enter the mainstream as artists that this is what it is now. This is just what music is. Yeah, for sure. And an important piece I want to put out to people about why I felt like this would be an instructor an interesting episode for a podcast that deals with pop and pop stardom to discuss because I want to make sure that as a show, we're not confined in our ideas of what pop is and what a pop star is to sort of traditional ideas of that or Michael Jacksonian ideals of what that is and talk about the fact that hip hop has played an incredibly important and central role in defining aesthetics and rappers have operated as pop stars. And I think one thing that was fascinating to me listening back to all this music is I think that's only become more true in the era of many of the rappers that came after these guys like Kanye, 
obviously Drake. There's a whole generation of rappers who are unequivocally pop stars who have unequivocally busted all those barriers down. And I was really interested listening to the ways that I think a lot of what these guys did in terms of their success, but also aesthetically laid the groundwork and were in some ways the opening salvo in breaking down barriers between what we thought of as pop and what we thought of as rap in R&B, obviously, too, and finding ways to present that all in one package. And that was one of the more thrilling aspects to me of going back and listening to this all from like a more critical lens this time was seeing the ways that these guys were pioneers in that way and that so many of these songs like yes they're rap songs but they feel so much like pop hits too of the time period it's hard to differentiate all of them out from each other so that was why i thought this would be like an instructive period and a group of people for us to look at today so let's go back and talk about this a little bit historically in broad strokes what is historically the relationship prior to this period between hip-hop and pop like how have the two genres interplayed as we like kind of build up to this particular moment in crossover rap stardom. Yeah, we have songs that were rap songs that were hits. Rapper's Delight, The Breaks. Yeah. Songs like this from the early 80s into the mid 80s that were one-off hits. The dance songs, rap is a genre that was based on dance music. So there's some dance pop rap hits that pop up from time to time. But the artists that are really establishing their careers as the people who are representing rap culturally and the really respected artists, i.e. around DMC, artists like that, are nowhere really near the pop charts. Right. They're huge artists selling out arenas and on magazine covers and yada yada, but they're really not in the center of pop music. They're certainly not on the pop charts. Maybe here and there, obviously, Run DMC has one, but there just isn't sustained rap fame at the pop level at this time. I think to me, like if we're talking about pop rap stardom, I think of LL Cool J and Will Smith, who when we think about male superstardom in the music space, those guys check all those boxes. Obviously, they become superstars in their own right eventually. But in the case of Will Smith, he obviously makes the decision that to become an A-list celebrity, he has to quit rapping, basically, and become an actor. Mm. Because there's just kind of a ceiling that you would hit just being a rapper in that time period. When you say they checked all the boxes of being a pop star, what do you see them as checking? What are the things that sort of they had that other rappers didn't have that made them seem more pop star-like? Yeah, I mean, they were cool. They were sex symbols, Mm -hmm. multi-hyphenate type artists. Both were actors. So in a different era, they would have been massive superstars. And Will Smith, I think if he had stuck with it, probably would have broken that barrier. But he obviously makes the decision to act. But those guys, the music was cool right but it was also widely appealing they did have hits you know will smith mm-hmm. and jazzy jeff had real hits School is out and this is sort of a buzz. but sustaining it in the way that we think of pop stardom and what this podcast really focuses on is still not really available to these guys at that time even though it really should have been based on basically everything right totally that's so interesting and then After we get through the 80s, I feel like the 90s coming up to this moment are a moment where these barriers really start to break down, both aesthetically and in terms of rappers being able to be mainstream pop figures. What do you see in the early to mid 90s as the turning points in this story that lay the groundwork for the guys we're going to talk about today? For me, it's really Dre and Snoop Dogg, I think, are like the big bang for the kind of rap superstardom we're talking about. Right. By the mid 90s or whatever, there's been rap number ones, but there's still a lot of novelty. MC Hammer mm-hmm. is a massive star, <laughs> sells 10 million albums in one year or whatever. Right. Yo, I told you, can't touch this. 
and he kind of sustains it there for a period but loses it and dre and snoop were the first ones in my opinion i think who made a street rap song that was like as candy coated catchy as pop song one two Three into the vote, Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the door. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Cause you know we're about to rip shit up. Give me the microphone. They put that formula together that more or less all these guys and plenty of rappers after them are expanding off that. But they were, I think, the ones who really figured that formula out. Yeah, this is the thing that's really interesting. And I was thinking about this with all of the guys we're going to talk about today. There's a big underlying tension in the rap crossover conversation, which is that rap, especially in this particular era in hip hop culture, is centered around ideas of realness, ideas of credibility. And there's very specific rules and regulations that sort of guide all of that for a lot of the hip hop world. And politics, NWA, Public Enemy. Right. The most respected rappers, Ice Cube, they were really addressing police brutality and really weighty, heavy topics while also making incredible music. They weren't writing essays. They were incredible musicians. But there was this perception that most respected rap was addressing real shit. There were Beastie Boys and stuff. There's nuance to everything. We're talking in broad strokes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in broad strokes. MC Hammer and stuff like that was considered frivolous. And it wasn't until the 90s that artists were making music that real rap fans would say that they listen to, but it also functioned as pop music as well. Exactly. And I think that that's such an important piece of this, because I think to me, that's the Dre and Snoop thing for sure, because they didn't sacrifice their hip hop bona fides in order to have those crossover super sing-songy hooks and all of those things that made those records so indelible and great pop songs and also credible, as you were saying, gangster rap songs, which I think is a catch-all that we're going to come back to, obviously, a lot, because a lot of these rappers are kind of emerging from the ashes or maybe the last gasps of the gang a rap idea. Because you think about Vanilla Ice, you think about MC Hammer. Hip-hop didn't claim them in a sense. They were almost an entirely like different thing. And then I think also really importantly, when I think about Biggie and Tupac, you think about Biggie, you think about Ready to Die, right? Songs like Juicy, songs like Big Papa. These are songs where artists that are embraced by the hip-hop community are also able to take baby steps away and gesture towards pop in a way that doesn't allow them to lose their bona fides. Is that a cultural shift? Is that a result of the way that mainstream audiences are just embracing hip-hop aesthetics in general? Does that have to do with something artful that they're doing? Is it like a combination of both of those things? How do you see the sort of circumstances that allow this to happen exactly? There's always kind of a kitsch factor to most rap that got super, super famous. And I think over time, as people just got more used to rap and generation shifted and whatnot, even over a small five, 10 year window, I think that's really what opens it up. Although I think it is also important to note in the case of Dre and Stu, people already knew Dr. Dre. He was already famous. People knew who he was. He was a respected artist. So he had visibility on him. And Snoop Dogg is, he was just a superstar. He's still a superstar. A friend of mine who's a bit older than me, a rap critic, tells me in his high school, Snoop Dogg was bigger than Michael Jackson. Right. And that's how it was for us too. When I was in school, there were kids running around with Nelly band-aids on their faces. And oh, for sure. They were the biggest musical artists of that moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were cooler than tier one of the pop pantheon, which they don't sniff when you put it the way that you do. But right. for that micro period of 
of time, they were that, which is all to say that by the mid to late 90s, we start to have real rap superstars in the way that we know them now. Right. And I think the other thing that I want to put a pin in that I'm curious about your thoughts on is the embrace coming the other way, i.e. pop stars beginning to sort of place at the center of their songs, rappers and rap aesthetics. And the two things that come to mind as really important inflection points in that movement are Mary J. Blige's Real Love remix with Biggie. There you have an R&B star that's kind of treading the line between pop, R&B and hip hop. She's in all of those worlds really squarely. And she's kind of bringing the genesis of what a lot of these rappers that we're going to talk about, the formula of what we're going to see, which is the woman singing the hook and the rapper doing the verses or vice versa, or a female pop star having a song and putting a rap verse on it. These are all starting to come together. I think of that Real Love remix as a really big moment. And then, of course, I think the big boom song for so much of what we're going to talk about today is Mariah Carey's fantasy remix with Old Dirty Bastard, which was a huge moment where the biggest mainstream pop star of the mid-90s took a rapper and put him center stage on her song. And it was the biggest hit of 1995 and one of her most seminal hits ever. Me and Mariah go back like babies were pacifiers. Old dirt dog, no liar. Keep the fantasy hot like fire. I feel like those are moments where hip-hop is being brought into the mainstream pop world by actual pop stars or more traditional pop stars themselves, which is also cultivating this acceptance and also laying the groundwork for what a number one hit song could sound like featuring one of these more credible rappers from the hip-hop world. What do you make of that? Yeah, as anyone who knows Mariah's story or has read her book, she ends up going through hell and having to divorce her boss slash husband all over rap music. I mean, to her, there was something about her identity that was manifesting that way. But the surface level of it was that she loved rap music. She wanted to do that. And it was so outside of what you would expect a pop star at her level to be doing at that time. They wanted to control the songs. They wanted to have her sing ballads. That's what that story was. And obviously, the person that Mariah turns to is Diddy, Puff Daddy at the time, who to me is the most crucial figure probably in this entire discussion. He's really the person who, in my opinion, in the history of rap, had the vision for rap and R&B and pop to be one huge, massive genre. Diddy essentially invents Jodeci, R&B singers who look and pose like rappers. He's executive producing and managing Mary J. Blige, Queen of Hip Hop Soul, this idea that you could have R&B that's essentially powered by rap. Diddy is intimately involved in the early stages of Missy Elliott's career. Usher gets sent to Diddy to toughen up and hone his image as you guys talked about in your episode about this. And Mariah essentially turns to Diddy to execute her vision for what rap and R&B and pop could be together. Mm -hmm. And Diddy goes on and has huge number one hits himself and on and on. But yeah, he's the one that to me really had the vision for how this all would work. And that manifests in the fantasy remix, which is just an up-tempo pop ray of sunshine that also has a rap beat and a rapper on it. And today that's as normal as a blue sky. But Mariah was the biggest pop star in the world. How do you bring rap into the biggest pop music on the planet by definition? She turns to Diddy and they executed it perfectly. It still sounds fresh to this day. Her struggle 
to make that remix happen, I think is so important for everybody to understand here because nowadays it's so de rigueur for us to think about pop stars and rappers collaborating, right? Like that's just, as you said, it's like a blue sky. But the fact that that was a difficult thing that people were pushing against her in 1995, I think is really important groundwork here for why I think this movement of the rappers that we're going to talk about is notable as a moment of a breakthrough in that particular way because these things were seen as as separate entities and moments like the fantasy remix are the thing that kind of knocked down the door. And I think the other player that I want to bring in, in addition to Diddy as a really important, I think, godfather to a lot of this is Jay, because Jay is carrying forth the groundwork that Biggie in particular, I guess, is laying out in terms of being a rapper who can be a credible, you know, have the drug dealer background, like have all of the bona fides that a lot of hip hop stars of this period felt like they needed and was seen as one of the greatest, most dexterous rappers of the time period, but also like very overtly made plays and overtures towards having mainstream pop success, often highly criticized, right? I mean, Jay's second record was, he tried to make glossier pop records. He was hyper criticized for that. But Jay in the mid to late nineties was also, to me, I think, I wonder what you think about this, kind of the first rapper that felt like a mainstream sustained pop star at the same time. What you're saying about Jay-Z is that he basically figures out how to become the coolest pop star in the world who's just also a rapper. And it's no insult to Jay-Z to say that if Biggie had lived, I think he would have been that person. So the groundwork had been laid, but there's a lot of stuff about Jay that made him the perfect person role. And he does it and it ends up leading down the line, literally directly to the music we're talking about today. Yeah. Let's start with our boy, Jeff. Jeffrey Adkins, Ja Rule. He's somebody that comes up kind of in tandem with Jay and DMX. Their stories are intertwined. Can you give a little bit of background on like who Ja Rule is and how he starts to enter into the hip hop space? Yeah, he's from Queens. And in the mid 90s, he was signed as part of a rap group called Cash Money Click, not the cash money we know and love today. No relation. (laughs) That group essentially flops, but through just being in the scene in New York rapping, Ja meets someone who would be a very, very important figure in his career, and that's Irv Gotti. Irv Gotti is someone who had just been around in the music business himself. He was in the mix with Jay-Z. From the beginning of Jay-Z's career, he becomes an A&R at Def Jam and signs DMX there, and he has known Ja and has wanted to break Ja as an artist for years. And once DMX gets huge and his involvement with Jay-Z continues, Irv gets his own label, and Ja is the first rapper on it, but I think it's important for us to mention the degree to which Ja Rule is connected to DMX and Jay-Z. They did a double XL cover that introduces them as Murder, Inc., and they had formed a super group, which never ended up happening, but there's tons of collaboration between them. The signal is basically like, if you like these two guys, here's the next guy. And Ja Rule breaks off a Jay-Z single, although Ja Rule had written the song and Jay-Z had heard it. And Ja and Irv Gotti make the decision to give Jay-Z the song, which is obviously Can I Get It, which goes onto the Rush Hour soundtrack and (laughs) becomes a huge hit. Ja and Irv Gotti had a decision to make at that moment. Were they going to keep the song or give it up? They give it to Jay-Z and that's really what breaks Ja Rule. And from there, he's just right there with everyone else in the rap scene. Can you bounce with me, bounce with me? Can you, can you, can you bounce with me, bounce with me? Yeah, it ain't even a 
question how my dough flows. I'm good to these bad hoes. Like my foot sweated, I'm dry like damn one thing that I was thinking about is that there's clearly an impetus that Ja Rule has in these early records where he's like trying to kind of be in the more traditional gangster rap pose. And I read a funny quote from him that before he put out his first actual single, which is Holla Holla, the record label was like, no, you need to like put hits on your album. And he was like, what do you mean? All of these more traditional rap records that I made are hits. And that's, of course, what inspired him to make Holla Holla, which becomes his breakthrough solo single. And it's so funny to me to think about somebody that became so efficient and good at making crossover radio rap hits seemed in this early period to not have any sense that was what he was going to do. Is that your interpretation of it as well? I mean, he definitely, when Irv Gotti discovers Ja Rule when he was in this group, it was hardcore New York street rap. There definitely was something about his vocal tone. He did kind of stand out, but you wouldn't picture him as a pop star. But eventually they basically strategize how to break him and they kind of figure that out. But looking back at the early songs, I wouldn't say that there's much there that would indicate to you that he was going to become who he was, although he did, he says, and I, it's believable to me, he write the hook on Can I Get Us. So at least from the point of view of can he write a hit song, he actually did do that. Yeah. But just needed Jay-Z to be the vessel. But yeah, I mean, his verse, in my opinion, on that song is kind of when you start to flip it to the next song. Right. <laughs> But you're so right to point out the hook because the hook is very clever. That call and response back and forth thing between the male and the female feels like an important piece here because that's something that Jaw is going to employ over and over again in a lot of his actual hits there. Yeah. Can I get a fuck you to the bitches from all of my niggas who don't love hoes? They get no dough. Can I get a hoop to these niggas from all of my bitches who don't got love for niggas without so we have Can I Get It, which becomes Jaws' breakthrough hit that kind of puts him on the map. In 1998, the song goes top 20 on the Hot 100, top 10 on the rap and hip-hop charts. And then he follows it up the next year with his first solo hit, which is the song Holla Holla in 1999. Does Holla Holla lay the groundwork for the future Jaw hits in meaningful ways? I mean, to some degree in that it was a minor hit. I definitely remember that song. I remember the video. It was in rotation on the TV, which yeah. will return to this topic. The power still of music videos in this era. Sure. It's a catchy hook. It's definitely like a street rap song. And they rightly understand that to blow him up into a huge artist bigger than Jay-Z and DMX, they have to go way more in a pop direction. But I love that song. Hall Hall is a great song. I own it on vinyl. I have nothing bad to say about... <laughs> That song, it's great, but they knew they had to shift the production. They had to get R&B and pop in there. They had to change it. But the album that it comes from, it's so unique because they really didn't even release another single off that record. If you listen to that record, it's all hard street rap, more or less. And they knew that they didn't have another single, the single that they wanted. So they immediately just jumped back into making new music and pushing it further and further. It was interesting too, just the last thing I wanted to say about that record is that he's not particularly memorable or great as a rapper's rapper to me. I think that's what you were getting at with the can I get a what, what verse and all of these things. Like he's not Jay-Z and he's not DMX and he's not Tupac, all artists informing his style here. So I wonder if that's part of it too. He's a serviceable rapper, but I, you texted me earlier today and said you can never remember anything he's ever rapped. And I think that that's so true. If you listen to Ja Rule talk about his early career, people were so often comparing him to DMX and Tupac that he was sick of it. I don't think he necessarily 
necessarily had the vision to get to the pop stardom the way that Irv Gotti did, but yes. Ja Rule definitely wanted to shed this DMX Tupac comparisons that were dogging him. That's all he heard. And it's not real any shame on him to not be a better rapper than DMX and Tupac. Right, exactly. He wanted to change his persona and turn this pop aspect of it up as much as they could. Ja Rule was going to be as gruff and vulgar and keep that personality present in that music, but just make it bright pop and R&B. That was like Irv Gotti's vision for how they were going to do this. So him maintaining some of that was still crucial to the music and how it was going to work. Yeah, But definitely everything around him and probably some of the subject matter he was rapping about to some degree was changing. Irv Gotti was an A&R guy, had worked at A&R. And he, I think he was thinking also like demographically about how do you grow his audience with women, but also maintain this male fan base? How do you just bring it all together? Part of the whole mix is him still being this hard rapper with this rough, tough voice. Right, right. Okay, so he was really quickly on to the second record, which is Rule 336 in 2000. The two sort of seminal hits in like discovering what the Jaw Rule thing is are these two singles from the second record, which are Between Me and You and Put It On Me. What's happening here that sort of launches the Jaw Rule thing into the stratosphere, I guess? It's really well-made music. I mean, I kind of love both these songs, actually. Me too. They held up really well to me going back and listening to, you know, this stuff. And the beats just get really bright and clean. Everything is gleaming. Everything mm -hmm. is shiny. Visually, that's what that era was. Bright and shiny era of rap and these beats are that you get some R&B singers on the hooks, guest verses, whatnot. Ja Rule also shows off some of his own melodic ability. I don't think compared to melodic rappers that we consider now or some of the other artists on this list for sure, he's not a vocalist on their level, but he does have the ability to do the functional melody required for this kind of music. And yeah, they're not huge smash singles, but I mean, they both are essentially top 10 hits and establishes him in that space. Yeah. Two things that I would just build off of what you were saying is that the female on the hook feels like a big thing because a big part of the Ja Rule formula is pairing that gruff voice with a creamy R&B sexy female singer. And so you've got Christina Milian doing that on Between Me and You and that's Little Mo on Put It On Me. That feels like a really important element in this whole formula that he's obviously going to refine further with Jennifer Lopez and Ashanti on these later songs, which is there's something charming about Ja Rule's gruff machismo put up against these female R&B singers. And that feels like something that comes to fruition on both of these songs, as well as a new persona where most of Jaw Rule songs start to become about sort of being a Lothario or flirtatious in this particular way that I think is the formula of a lot of his hits are, which is like him and a woman kind of like flirting with each other, which is different than a lot of the gangster rap tropes that he was coming from at that particular moment. Yeah, he says a lot of gross stuff on his songs. I should say artless. <laughs> he just wasn't necessarily like the most clever. There were artists like Lil Wayne and whoever who eventually kind of perfected this ability to be clever and cool 
cool and themselves on songs with women. Ja Rule's not really like a clever no. rapper. He's kind of just rude and mean. <laughs> to your point, it's further heightening that contrast of who he is as a rapper and what he's being surrounded with. It is what it is. The best thing I can say about him, there is something about that kind of grunting noise that he makes with his voice when paired up with these women that does have a certain charm to it. I think that's maybe the kindest thing I could say about Ja Rule as a singular artist. Although he's not the only person that's doing that, but he is the one that executed it on all of these songs. So the next year is his big run of success through his own hits, which he has a slew of, and then his famous collaborations with Jennifer Lopez that make up his imperial phase in 2001, 2002. So we're talking about I'm Real remakes, living it up, always on time ain't it funny mesmerize so what happens here let's take them one by one if we can i think the one that it feels like the prototype the ultimate jaw rule r&b singer link up pop hit of the time is the i'm real remix what's happening here why does this song kind of stand out to you first off j-lo had gone kind of euro dance pop making some good music but it's in that kylie minogue madonna from that time period mm-hmm. it didn't really make sense for her and the label or her management approached jaw rule and Irv Gotti to do a remix of Unreal. And they're like, there's no way Ja Rule can rap over this. So they just come up with a whole new song and it flips the song entirely. There's a certain warmth to the collabs with Ja Rule where it's a bit different than his earlier hits were, you know, like we were saying, really bright and gleaming, yeah. almost like reflecting the sun back in your face. There's something just a little bit more organic feeling, obviously based on the sample choices, Unreal and, and Ain't It Funny. And it kind of puts Ja Rule in a different context where I think we would all agree he essentially works the best these are probably everyone's favorite draw rule songs more or less Right, and then they worked that formula again for the Ain't It Funny remix. I think what makes these work even better than the earlier prototypes is that he's almost cuddly. Yeah, well, I think the way that he talks about treating women in his songs, you can't really do that to J-Lo. Right. There's something just cute about those videos. Like, she seems happy. She seems like she's genuinely having fun. Obviously, the songs are great. That helps. But they do seem to have a chemistry together. And these songs kind of locate the charm within Ja Rule that you see, but maybe not the rest of us necessarily see. (laughs) (laughs) You were talking about the brightness, the quality of the hooks. Is there anything in particular about these songs, the formula here that we could just pull out for people? I mean, one thing that came into my mind is the call and response hook. That's the thing that comes into a lot of these songs. I was thinking I'm real, the way that they go back and forth on those songs and on all the verses, almost presages a promiscuous girl or something like that. There's something about the formula of it and the melding of the pop sensibility and the rapper really explicitly, even in like a back and forth 
that feels like an important element of the success of these records to me somehow. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, they kind of go back to the formula for where this started. Yeah. These are sample-based records. Ja Rule didn't really otherwise rap over samples. His other singles, I think essentially all of them, if not literally all of them, these are all just songs that Irv Gotti and his crew of producers are making. They hadn't really explicitly carried over that torch that was started with ODB and Mariah and Diddy, where you get this great sample and it feels hip-hop in that way. With these two songs, they actually go back to that formula. So in a sense, they're uninventing the wheel or something yeah. and just going back to the <laughs> basics of this very nascent thing. But that's in a way what they do. And they pick classic great samples, nothing insane. Mary Jane Girls All Night Long, one of the best R&B songs of the 80s to me, is the sample on I'm Real. <laughs> And then the other part of the apex of his success is his collaboration with his own protege, Ashanti, who he scores one of his most indelible hits. If not, I'm real. It's this one, which is always on time. Is this just essentially working the same formula in your mind? I think to some degree. I don't love these songs really as much as the others or as some other people maybe. But honestly, I think at this point, he was already so huge that they had perfected a formula and there was still an appetite for that. Right. Other people might feel like Ashanti. Shanti and Ja Rule have some sort of grand chemistry. I don't know if I really fall in that boat. I mean, <laughs> she happened to be there and shout out to Shanti. obviously. Has some amazing songs in her own right. I'm not trying to blatantly disrespect Ashanti on this podcast, but it's less about Ashanti and just more that Ja Rule's kind of limited as an artist. Yeah. With Always On Time, they really go for this really broad, I mean, it still is a rap beat, but they keep pushing it even further. You never thought I'd make you smile while I'm smacking your ass and fucking you all while. We share something so rare, but who cares? You cares, baby. I'm not always there when you call, but I'm always on time. And I gave you my all. Now, baby. What the fuck does this song mean? What does it mean? I'm not always there when you call, but I'm always on time. What does that mean, Jordan? What is she talking about? Honestly, it's one of the only memorable things about <laughs> the song is the fact that no one really gets it. I mean, it's a great line. I'm not always there when you call, but I'm always on time. I.e., she's not always home when he calls, but when they have plans, she shows up on time? I think she's saying she has like a preternatural ability to just know what he needs. Maybe she's not always there, but like she knows what he needs before he even knows it. Right. She doesn't answer at his beck and call, but when push comes to shove, she knows what he actually needs. And look, Max Martin would be the first person to tell you the importance of writing lyrics that don't make any sense as long as they suck. Yes. All right. So Always On Time, huge number one hit. Mesmerize also. Always On Time is huge. Mesmerize is huge as well. Yeah. How does Ja Rule's career unravel? What happens post 02, 03 after he's had this incredible run? What happens here? 50 cents, <laughs> 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 which I feel like we'll save for the 50 cent section of the podcast, yes. but more or less 50 cent happens. In reality, every other artist that we're going to talk about today, in some way, figures out how to do Ja Rule better than Ja Rule. Mm. Sometimes by not even needing a guest vocalist or an R&B singer, just being able to carry the singing on their own. So definitely 50 Cent has like a direct effect on what happens with Ja Rule's career. But there is just better artists coming up around him. And he had a formula. He squeezed that lemon with a juicer. Did he ever? 
together. We just kind of moved on to better stuff in a way. Yeah, that's so true. And then he retreated into trying to make more hardcore street records like on Clapback in New York. And it goes on to uh, create the Firefest. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there was something about Ja Rule that really pissed people off. Yeah. People just found him to be such a huckster. And in a way, yeah. it harkens back to the fact that he was seen as a sellout rapper. If Nelly was the one who had done the Firefest thing, I don't think it's like half the scandal that it is. Ja Rule is like the perfect person to be involved with that. People were waiting to pounce, kind of. He's been a comedic punchline. People our age know the Dave Chappelle punchline about Ja Rule and yada yada. Like he was kind of a laughing stock as it was happening towards the end of it. That's kind of carried over until now. Yeah. I remember right around September 11th, uh, Ja Rule was on MTV. That's what they said. They said, we got Ja Rule on the phone. Let's see what Ja's thoughts are on this tragedy. Who gives a fuck what Ja Rule thinks at a time like this, nigga? This is ridiculous. I don't want to dance. I'm scared to death. I want some answers that Ja Rule might not have right now. You think when bad shit happens to me, I'll be in the crib like, oh my God, this is terrible. Because somebody, please, Find Ja Rule, get hold of this motherfucker so I can make sense of all this. Where is Ja? Add me, Ja Rule. Are you enjoying this episode? Do you like what you're hearing? Well, I think you might need to subscribe to Pot Pantheon All Access, our new Patreon channel. If you join there at the icon tier for just $5 a month, you're getting bonus content, bonus episodes of the show, including deep dives into albums by artists we haven't covered yet on the podcast with some of your favorite Pot Pantheon guests like Rich Juzwiak on Janet Jackson's The Velvet Rope, Owen Myers on SZA's SOS, Troy McKeady on Britney Spears' Blackout and Rolling Stone's Britney Spanos on Taylor Swift's Reputation. We're also covering lots of new music there. We're talking about new songs all the time by all of your favorite artists from Lana to Tovey Lu to Kim Petras to Sam Smith and on and on. And we're responding to current events. We recently did episodes reacting to the Grammys with Russ and I and also I had Julianne Escobedo Shepard on to dissect Rihanna's Super Bowl performance. You also will get access to our Discord channel guest list access to my party gorgeous gorgeous in los angeles and so many more perks so go to patreon.com pantheon or click the link in the show notes to become a subscriber to pop pantheon all access today all right so you brought up nelly let's go next to nelly tell me nelly's story like how did nelly get into the rap game essentially where's he from what's his story he's not actually from st louis he moves there when he's in high school he's in the streets he's dealing drugs he is in a rap group called the st lunatics they have a local hit down there kind of sound like a bad boy kind of beat which is interesting give me what you got is that what you're talking about yeah back on up i heard you on my chin like you yelling nelly you lost me pull my off and look like oj they kind of have this local hit and they try and chop themselves to labels, but they're not getting any bites. And they make the decision that it might be easier to focus just on one of them. And they choose Nelly as the star of the group. Mm-hmm. And Nelly makes a demo, which contains Country Grammar, EI, and Ride With Me. Unfortunately, he really can't find labels to sign him, which either shows you how dumb A&Rs are or how, how hard A&R <laughs> is, depending on yeah. your perspective. But anyway, eventually, a guy at Universal named Kevin Law signs him. 
the song was great and it became a huge hit immediately. You're talking about country grammar in particular. Yeah, sorry, country grammar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I was reading that they gave Nelly 150 grand for the video, which at that time was like a pittance for the video, which for now is probably only given to like three artists in the world. But he wasn't really a hot prospect. I think this guy who signed him has said, you know, in interviews that he was like the laughing stock of the office, that people thought he was insane for signing this guy. And we have to pause and talk about the fact that Nelly came from St. Louis and the fact that there was no rap scene in St. Louis and we're still in the East, West and South. That's how we viewed rap music and St. Louis is not the South. It's something else. There was no rappers from there. And so people were really skeptical that someone from there making music that has a kind of like twang inherent to it in a way mm-hmm. could like break and become a huge rapper. So, you know, it takes Nelly a minute to actually get to the point of being signed and having that opportunity. But once it happens, it happens very quickly. So what's happening on Country Grammar? Why is that song such an out the gate smash, do you think? I mean, it's literally one of the best songs in the history of music. Like, I don't know what else to say. (laughs) That's the answer. (laughs) It's so good. It's an incredible song and the amount of melodic stuff that happens on that song like every verse there's like three different flows Although obviously the hook being the main thing and we were talking earlier about this kind of playground hook and he does a very novel rap thing to do, which is to flip that hook and to make it be about drive-by shootings. <laughs> the down, down baby. It's literally samples like a playground rhyme, down, down baby. Right, yeah. exactly. Down, down baby, down by the roller coaster, sweet, sweet baby i'll never let you go and there's just all these little parts in the song like it's just an extraordinarily catchy song he just had a knack for saying things that were like really really memorable to people yeah and there is as you were saying like there's almost like a sung quality to some of this like it's very melodically driven in a way that feels prescient of a lot of where rap is going yeah for sure and honestly if you sit down and read the lyrics he's talking about dealing drugs and growing up what his life is like he's just telling his own story, which is what rap music is. And obviously involves things that were of an unsavory nature, but you don't have to like even clock any of that because just the melodic aspects of the verses, the flows. I mean, there's so many parts of the song that you can remember that are just completely different from the rest of the song, but he just says stuff in such a catchy way. There's just like a generosity of melody and creativity and ideas in the songwriting. And he's such a charmer. For sure. What I really enjoyed about him is unlike Ja Rule, who felt like he had to lead with his sort of like uh, 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 masculinity thing, there's something kind of laid back and at peace with his being that Nelly has, where he sounds really happy to be here, really happy to be alive and not putting on anything. Like it all feels very authentic and chill in a certain way. 
he had an ability that all great rappers have, which is to tell a story that we've heard before, but say it in a new way. Mm. And I think also the St. Louis thing can't be overemphasized how forward that was and like Nelly's imagery and, band and branding. Obviously, the cover of the album, the arch, and the videos, him and the St. Lunatics are always wearing St. Louis sports clothes. This is still a time where we think of rap in very regional senses and this idea yeah. that something was happening in St. Louis was fresh and novel and there was something interesting about the music coming from that place and I think that part of it was really important as to why he felt fresh as well. And in thinking about the other two big hits from this record, EI and Ride With Me, what's going on there? Like, is that building on the formula in meaningful ways? What are these songs doing exactly? Yeah, I mean, I think EI is a bit more standard. I don't know if anyone would put it in like their top three Nelly songs, but even that one, I can still remember the fact that he rhymes Jeff Gordon and Navigation by saying <laughs> Jeff Gordon with the Navigation. <laughs> He just had this way of like coming up with shit that is just catchy outside of the chorus. Yes. Love EI, but obviously it's like not quite on the level of Ride With Me, which is just kind of pop and not really it's R&B rap up tempo. I mean- A little country maybe? Yeah, for sure. And I think to your point, like what you were saying earlier, comparing him to Ja Rule, Nelly is able to like access a sort of like tenderness and honesty in his singing voice that like allows him to carry this song in particular. He just has the ability to do this which I don't know how many rappers could actually have made Ride With Me. And like, it still feels very unique in terms of what it's pulling from and what it does and how it sounds. Like there's not a lot of songs that sound like that. And it comes very natural off of him, which just speaks to why he was unique and noteworthy as an artist. Yeah, I mean, I think Ride With Me feels important for so many reasons. Like, A, I think I don't experience the same tension. Like, I think Ja Rule, in some ways, I could experience as kind of resenting what he had to do to become successful. Like, I think Ja Rule, on some level, wanted to be more of like a DMX or Jay-Z. I mean, we talked about that as his original ambitions. And I'm not saying that he didn't enjoy the hits that he made or whatever. But I always felt there was a moment, especially like when I started to hear songs like Clapback, where Ja Rule was like going like, wait a second, like I'm also still this rapper that I initially wanted to be. Nelly never felt like somebody to me that was making any concessions to like have his pop hits. He just felt very much like he was just doing his thing. The other thing I was going to say is that Ride With Me, I also think really harkens back to what I think is like prototypical version of these kind of rap songs, these crossover rap songs, which is Juicy. I mean, there's so many lyrical things that happen on this song that reminded me of Juicy. I made the change from a common thief to up close and personal with Robin Leach and I'm far from cheap. I smoke soap with my peeps all day. Spread love, it's the Brooklyn way. The Basically, it's a song about how he's now successful and making my living off my brain instead of Kane now. You know, I got a, the title for my mama, put the whip in my own name now. You know, it's like the yeah. whole rags to riches rap story that animates a lot of these crossover hits. I think. It feels strange now, making a living off my brain instead of Kane now. I got the title for my mama, put the whip in my own name now. Damn, shit can change now. Running credit checks with no shame now. That's an aspect of hip hop culture that I think a lot of people can like graft onto, even if they're not necessarily like hip hop heads themselves, I guess. Definitely. It has that quality, just like Juicy and you know, when he pays cash to sit in first class next to Vanna White, you're like, damn, it feels like a real accomplishment. It feels well, earned. Can I make it damn right? I'll be on the next flight. Paying cash. First class. Sitting next to Vanna White. Come on. 
and you want to root for him. Nelly has that quality. Like you really want him to win. Yeah, and there's a relatability to like a genuine aspirational aspect sitting in first class. Like it is something that's within reach of most people to some degree, maybe. He's able to tap into that. He has a genuine aspect to him that really drives these songs. And I mean, this song feels prescient to me of the country rap sort of fusion that he ends up also being part of making that happen in the latter part of his career. There is a sort of drawl Southern country vibe to Nelly. And this song with its like acoustic guitar strummed sort of thing almost feels like a prototypical version of some of the other country illusions he ends up drilling down on in his later work. The hook of Ride With Me, you could picture that being a country song, really. Yeah, for sure. So Country Grammar is like one of the biggest albums of all time. Yeah, it goes diamond. This record is jive-fucking-gantic. So then he jumps on a couple of big songs where the party had the Jagged Edge song. And then, of course, our boy Justin Timberlake appears for the first time here <laughs> as Nelly appears on Girlfriend, the song from Pop. Yeah. Personal shrink, boo, I care what you think. I bought the Billy and Pink, cause my dough in sync. So tell your man, bye bye, and tell him you're long. Ain't no need waiting up, you didn't find you another the next record is Nellyville. It's led off by, I think, one of the most iconic songs of our childhoods, which is the Neptune's production, Hot and Horror, I guess is how I'm supposed to say it. I can't talk about this song like objectively because this song defined my life. This song was the biggest song of my childhood. And I think in some ways like an apex Neptune song. And I thought one of the things that was interesting about it was this is the first time it hit me when I was listening to it this time is that it's kind of a disco record in the way that it's hearkening back to maybe some of the earlier rap styles that you were getting at like the genesis of rap as rappers rapping over disco breaks this song is playing with that a little bit but it's also like the most ridiculous song of all time this hook is so much fun because it is literally like the stupidest fucking thing i've ever heard Yeah, I mean, good gracious ass is bodacious. I mean, that's how you open your song. What a life. He's silly and that's really lovable. He leans into being a goof, which is incredibly appealing, I feel. Yeah, this song sounds completely different than the music that he had been making, but like the thread that connects is just his ability to switch flows up and just say stuff that you remember, get off the freeway, you know, 106 and parked it, ashtray flipped it. You just remember these little bits of the song and when you're listening to it for the 3000th time, yeah. this is the stuff that still makes it feel fresh and fun and unexpected. The songwriting and the way he raps these songs it's just really really well done creative stuff and uh yeah it elevates these songs and makes them really endure in a real way and then the other smash hit which is i think still to this day nelly's biggest hit is dilemma which is i kind of feel like nelly's spin on the jaw rule formula but is the best possible version of the whole thing i mean i absolutely adore this song Nelly just had that tenderness in his voice. Like he had that ability to play off this puppy love thing. I met this chicken, she just moved right up the back for me. And she got the hunts for me, the finest thing I've ever seen. Oh no, no, she got a man and a son though. Obviously in the video, they're on the street in the back lot in a studio somewhere. This classic 80s idea of romanticism. Obviously Kelly Rowland flips open her phone and texts Nelly on Excel. <laughs> <laughs> the generations were smashed together. But no, like the song in the video really, it's all about this innocence. 
the song is really light and fluffy mm. and Nelly could really credibly live in that world in a way that very few rappers certainly up to that point anyway could he works so much better as a Lothario than Ja Rule does when this song came on today I was just beaming and it was one of the songs that I went back and just like had to play twice I love this song so fucking much it's a classic duet this is like the best version of Always on Time to me exactly it really is the best you could ever possibly make that kind of song they got it here production super memorable we all know the little noise and uh, it's just a song everyone loves we all still love it they figured out how to perfect that his persona wasn't threatening again this like why he works in ways that ja rule didn't he just seemed like an approachable cool charming guy yeah okay so nellyville another humongous album i think it sold like seven million copies these two songs are fucking gigantic oh we didn't talk about air force one's another hit from this record yeah i mean do you want to talk about imperial phase like you make a number yeah. three hit about fucking shoes <laughs> Air Force Ones, actually. Yeah, exactly. And look, that slang was huge to his appeal. Oh my God. And it reminds me of Snoop Dogg, honestly. A lot of those things, the way that Snoop Dogg was able to bring new forms of language <laughs> into being. Yeah, I mean, look, how did Ice Spice blow up? She came up with a cool slang. Nelly was doing that too. Hot and Her, it is kind of funny, but it also explains his appeal. You associated that with him and it was fresh, it was new. Mm -hmm. He really cultivated that. So the wheels kind of start to fall off a little bit of Nelly's commercial success with the next release even though it has heads it's a double album called sweatsuit which is like his sasha fierce i guess <laughs> has this ever worked i mean beyonce couldn't pull it off no and never it's like literally nobody ever do this ever again yeah please. i don't really remember listening to these albums back at the time no. there's unfortunately not a ton <laughs> on there it just didn't really go right although we do have to say that this record did produce over and over yes which we need to talk about. This is the biggest hit from this record. Yeah, just a wonderful, beautiful song. With Tim McGraw. And that was a big deal at this moment. I think people need to understand, like a rapper and a country starving song together was unheard of. And it's a country ballad. It's not a country yeah. rap song. It's really a ballad. And they pulled it off. It's really an incredible song. And people took that as credible. It wasn't seen as insane. Did it work in the country world? Probably not, but it was definitely a real pop hit. And people like yeah. me, who had no connection to Tim McGraw, but wanted to kind of feel like this was authentic authentic and he had that ability. I was so taken with the way that he is essentially singing again here. We talk so much about the way that Drake melted rap and singing and R&B together, but a lot of these rappers were doing that, and Nelly really was doing that. I mean, on Dilemma and on this song, it's hard to even qualify them as rap songs. I mean, he's essentially singing these songs. Yeah. I was very struck by that this time. Yeah, and look, he's not a classically great singer. He's not going to get up on stage and sing a beautiful acapella, but <laughs> no. he has the ability to find this register in his voice that 
that it's just really yeah. soft and tender and caring earnest and, yeah earnest definitely and there's a mournfulness in this song mm. this is a sad song and he can kind of sell that mournfulness and that sadness he can access these different emotions through his ability to sing and yeah it's again it's something that we kind of take for granted now with a lot of artists but he was an original at it and in his own unique way he's still trailblazing his own path in terms of rap country it's hard to do it credibly to use that word again but he's done it yeah so that was the end of his big moment in the sun but he's actually like had a weirdly extended run of success he had a big hit in 2010 called just a dream which i think the less said about the better (laughs) for me personally and he of course kind of brought the country rap fusion thing to fruition on his massive hit with florida georgia line the cruise remix (laughs) feels like an important moment in his legacy in terms of the way that country and rap have melded together since then this feels like a pivotal moment in that story and he's a pivotal character In a way, the artist with the longest run of hits of any of the people we're going to talk about today. Yeah, he's got the longevity on all these guys for sure. Yeah, makes me happy. I have great affection for Nelly. (laughs) So our next batter up is Ludacris. Maybe perhaps the greatest rapper of these bunch that we're going to talk about today? Question mark? Yeah, I mean, certainly in the classic sense of punchlines. I mean, some of those early Nelly songs are incredible rapping in their own way. But yeah, the thing with Ludacris is classic rapping. He's definitely in this group far and away. I mean, there's not a lot of people at that time who were doing the style of rapping at the kind of level of pop that he was. He's a remarkable rapper. Yes, he was so good. So tell us a little bit about Ludacris's story. How does he come up? We know him as this emblem of Atlanta, like Nelly in St. Louis, Atlanta and Ludacris mm-hmm. was so tied together. But he was actually born in Illinois and got to Georgia when he was a teenager in high school and went to college there at Georgia State and majored in music management. And he gets an internship at a radio station, which I think then was Hot 97. I think now it's called Hot 107. Mm-hmm. And he's a radio personality. He's a guy on the radio yeah. introducing songs and doing all that stuff that we associate with music radio. I think he would rap as well, like on the radio, like in his persona. But through being at the radio station, he meets people in the rap world and he eventually becomes an artist. It's Timbaland, who's the first person to really ever put him on a record on Tim's first album, Fat Rabbit, incredible song. And Ludacris immediately starts that song with you could tell like he knew he had his one shot the hunger as they say i be that nigga named luda aka l-o-v-a l-o-v-a put that shit nigga what you want to say one time south side let's ride and if you love what you do do what you feel then i know you're gonna mark my words i drop shit like birds and it's about the time for your ass to get served he came on this song mad as hell you know he really was trying to impress upon us okay i'm like a real ass rapper and that's a great song great verse and immediate personality i mean he's just like so fucking entertaining and like the personality is so booming and amazing and the voice exactly he really puts out an album independently which would become back for the first time which was his debut but he sells his own record independently in atlanta and catches the ear and the eye of scarface legendary 
Texas rapper who gets made the head of Def Jam South, which is Def Jam iconic New York label, opens up a South part of the roster. Ludacris is the first signing there. So he kind of gets this machine behind him. That's kind of how he gets to the point where he blows up with What's Your Fantasy? Right. So What's Your Fantasy is the song from Back for the First Time, produced by Bangladesh, who goes on to become a huge producer. Right, exactly. Who at the time was not called that. He was called Sean Dre, right? Yeah, his real name. But yeah, produced by Bangladesh. Who listeners of this podcast might know from Beyonce's Diva, Rihanna's Cockiness, Amelie. And he, he produces most of this album. Obviously, What's Your Fantasy? It's That's a hard-ass song, but it's a fucking stand-up comedy routine. Like, it is so... <laughs> Jordan, this song is so fucking funny. I literally was cracking up at this fucking song. This song is out of its fucking mind. I remember being completely like scandalized by this song as a kid, but also thinking it was the funniest thing ever. I was going to say like when you were 13 at this age, you would get in the car with your mom or something. If you could get on the radio, you would like turn on the radio and it would be this. And then you guys yeah. would ride in the car listening to Ludacris <laughs> talking about fucking on the 50 yard line, you know, and all this kind of shit. What about it for the candy store? That chocolate, chocolate, chocolate make yeah, it well, we can do, we can carry out. We can do the whole song right now. <laughs> we can do it in the pouring rain, running the train when it's hot or when it's cold out. How about up in the library on top of books, but you can't be too loud. You want to make a brother beg for it? Give me TLC because you know I'll be too proud. We can do it in the White House. Try to make them turn the lights out. Campaign with my campaign. The entertainment value of every ludicrous word, line, delivery song. Like, he is an entertainer, or like first and foremost, almost on a certain level. And you were talking about the idea of the cartoon character. Like, Snoop kind of embodied this in a certain way, too. And I think that's another important connection to what you were talking about earlier in our conversation. But Ludacris was this fully fleshed out cartoon character, like right from the beginning. When Ludacris talks about sex, it's not sexy. It's fucking hilarious. Yeah. One of his biggest songs around this time is Ho. The chorus, use a ho. But... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's talking about hozone layer. And at the end, he says, yeah. us guys are hoes too. So he, even when he's being kind yeah. of disrespectful, it's usually comes back on him in some way or he undercuts it to some degree. And he did cartoonish videos too, which I think the video aspect of this time period, Ludacris, I think is the emblem to me of how important videos were. At the time, he was such a memorable person physically. He often had his Afro blown out. He had silver, I don't know what you and scissors like whatever your little the fangs are like he had just those silver plated and the rollout video which comes later you know with like the bobbleheads he was really an underrated visual artist like if you go back and watch the saturday video if you watch the southern hospitality video he obviously links up with missy and visually i think they feel really connected i mean he's kind of almost in a way in this original buster rhymes lineage of Ludacris and hype williams would have made i don't know if they did but if they didn't they would have made incredible videos together mm -hmm. i want to emphasize repo we were so watching music videos constantly. That's how I consumed this music. I mean, MTV by this point wasn't playing music videos, but you had BET, you had 106 and Park, you had Rhapsody in the Basement, which were all on after school. And if you just came home and wanted to flip on the TV and this is what you watched, the visual aspect of Ludacris in particular, I think is as connected in the way that you talk about on this podcast with like Madonna and stuff. I mean, it's not to that degree, but he was a master of the visual form. No question. And it was about creating that cartoon figure. I mean, he often like is portrayed in all of these weird physical guises like his head's too big or right. he is a baby with his diaper getting changed right exactly he does a video with spike jones the stand-up 
video. It's like this real cartoonish oversized arms and he takes it to that literal level. It was in his rapping too, but in a cool and funny and lovable way. That's what made him unique was that sense of cartoonish outlandishness, but with skill. Yeah. He was an incredible rapper. Oh my God. Okay, so what's your fantasy huge? There's also Southern Hospitality, like a great early Neptunes beat that's on that first record. Ball, players in the house that can buy the bar and the balling ass niggas with the candy cars. If you a pimp and you know you don't love them hoes when you get on the floor. Then his second record, Word of Mouth, is in 2001. I mean, this guy had a fucking run. And he's so versatile. He's the rapper that traverses the most producers. He works with Jazzy Faye, Neptunes, Timberland, Kanye. I think it's worth noting that by the time he hits single number two, Southern Hospitality, he's already worked with Timberland and the Neptunes. Yeah, right. Going to Word of Mouth, roll out the lead single is a Timberland beat. Yeah. Saturday's Organized Noise, legendary Outcast-related production. Welcome to Atlanta, Jermaine Dupree. These were incredible songs. Like, you never got the sense that he was being elevated by the production. It was more like an incredible alchemy of his ability with these producers. And you get stuff that's really Southern. There is some almost Outcast-y type pop records. Yeah. But also he did hard street rap, like Roll Out. Move Bitch. Move Bitch. But again, like a whole song about running someone over with your car. It's Crazy Taxi. <laughs> you know, like that's what it is. You never get the sense that he's actually running people over with his car and like a menace, like a, an asshole. He was unique in that way. And that was always threaded through his music, even as he was doing really hard street rap records. You know, he was coming up in the time of Crunk, Little John, really hard rap music. And he was on those songs. He was doing songs with Little John. Obviously, he does Yeah, which is his biggest moment with Little John. But he was able to do that hard stuff and still be himself, be funny. And I think we should note that he's unique among the list of people we're talking about today that there's not a lot of melody in his music he doesn't sing that's true he's unique among these guys in that he got to pop stardom without that melodic r&b aspect that we're really talking about he mastered a lot of the aspects of pop stardom that you touch on in this podcast through more conventional rapping yeah and the other thing is that he's really 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 smart that was the other thing that i kept thinking is there's almost like a meta-ness to some of this every time he's dealing with tropes that traditional rap music is dealing with whether it's hoes or violence or whatever these things are there's always always this wink nod meta almost like he's taking the piss out of the tropes when I was thinking about area codes I was thinking this song if you took it on surface level is this juvenile stupid song like about fucking a lot of girls in different places but he's almost making fun of those tropes you almost can't take it seriously read your horoscope and eat your read your horoscope and eat some hors d'oeuvres the shrewd comedy aspect recontextualizes a lot of these gangster tropes. Also, he was, of all of these rappers, the most effective guest verse rapper. Like, I think a lot of his career kind of turned on these classic guest verses, like on One Minute Man, on Gossip Folks, on Holiday Inn, on Welcome to Atlanta, on Yeah, on Oh, the Sierra song. What do you think made him such a dynamic accent to another person's song? He took it seriously and he tried really hard. And I think also just emblematic of an artist who's really good at this thing is they approach the tracks in unconventional, unexpected ways. If you think about his guest verse on Oh, the way he's messing around with his voice and doing all these cool little vocal ticks and vocal tricks. And I'm the one you should get, 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 get with. Right, exactly.
kindred spirit with Missy in terms of coming at it from like a different angle. You know, we we're talking about Nelly, the way he does things with flows, ludicrous it was in a similar vein in that way. And then of course he was just really fucking funny. And the yeah verse is pretty straight ahead, but everyone remembers that verse because it's memorable punchline after memorable punchline. It's rap music. Yeah. Watch out, my outfit's ridiculous. In the club looking so conspicuous. And wow, these women all on the prowl. If you hold the head steady, I'ma melt the cow. And forget about game, I'ma spit the truth. I won't stop till I get them in their birthday suit. So give me the rhythm and it'll be off with their clothes. Then bend over to the front and touch your toes. I at the end of the day, like Eminem in some respect, that's Ludacris's calling card. He can just show up on a song like that and just wreck it. If we talk about most memorable rap verses of the last 20 years, people would put that right up with anything. Certainly for people our age, that's the national anthem more or less. So I don't even know if I could say the Star Spangled Banner, but I could rap all of <laughs> that verse right now if I need to. Yeah, he works as a supporting character in a really specific way. A lot of these solo songs are memorable too, but there's something about Ludacris in contrast to some of these other artists, whether he's working with somebody that's similar to him, like Missy, or he's working with a more straight ahead singer like an Usher or Sierra or whoever. There's something about his daffiness that really adds something special <laughs> to a track. Yeah, he's a great sidekick. You know, again, it's almost like classic comedy. Like Martin and Lewis or something. <laughs> again, we talk about cartoonishness. He's like a sidekick to Batman. You always are happy when Ludacris shows up. He's just one of those characters. So Ludacris has really an epic run. He's releasing an album a year and we get this record, Chicken and Veer. I mean, Stand Up, the Kanye produced song that leads off that record is so fucking good. That was another one that I listened to like 50 times today. I mean, I could rap every word to that song too. That song is a 12 out of 10 to me. And that's the video where he's in the diaper. Oh, what's wrong? The club and the moon is full. And I'm looking for a thick young lady to pull. One sure shot way to get him out of them pants. Take note to the brand new dance like this. When I move, you move. Word of Mouth is a really good record, and it kind of tails off from there. Yeah, right. Money Maker. His last number one in 2006. Shake your money maker like somebody about to pay you. I see you on my radar. Don't you act like you were afraid of shit. You know I got it. If you want to come get it, stand next to this money like, hey, hey, hey. How low. There's nothing good I can say about how low, unfortunately. My Chick Bad. I mean, My Chick Bad is kind of iconic in its own way. More for Nikki, though, I think. That was like a great early Nikki verse. Yeah. You know, I think it's worth noting in terms of Pop Pantheon, his association with being a great guest verse rapper eventually nets him massive hits when he's past his prime. Right. He's the guest on Justin Bieber Baby, which didn't hit number one, but was obviously a massive song. was 13 i have my first love there was nobody that compared to my baby and nobody came between us so could ever come up how cruise break your heart goes to number one oh, right forgot about that he hits number four with an Enrique iglesias song oh my god i totally forgot about these none of these are particularly great songs nor are they particularly great verses right his verse on glamorous another one where he's kind of messing around with his voice what to do with us. yeah he just kind of gives you something classically on that song but when I was making my list of accomplishments for all four of these guys, Ludacris has as much hits as any of them. If you count features, he's on O. Like, I give him credit for that as much as I give credit to Sierra, who's also great, but his part is integral to that song. And he has tons of hits like that. So when you start looking at him in terms of the pop pantheon, all these guest verses and the stuff that he gets down the road tallies up. Yeah. All right. So let's get on to our last guy who may be at the biggest 
actual moment of anybody in this grouping, but also fell off the fastest of anybody in this grouping, correct? I mean, honestly, Ja Rule fell off really fast. Right, that's true, that's true. But 50 fell further. 50 fell further. No one fell further than 50. (laughs) Yeah, it was really quick. (sighs) What's 50's story? Give us the background on 50. So 50 Cent, like Ja Rule, is from Queens. Their stories are quite intertwined. And 50 kind of bounces around a little bit as a rapper, appears on some songs, just kind of in the mix on a low-level way, and is eventually taken under the wing of Jam Master J from mm. Run DMC and breaks into the rap game with a really memorable song and how to rob. This is in August. 99. Yeah, a little bit, obviously a little bit later Mm -hmm. than these guys, but he, yeah, makes How to Rob, which is a hysterical song about robbing rappers and R&B singers and famous people. It's a really cartoonish song, you know, in the style of an earlier Biggie song, naming all the famous, most famous rappers in the world in New York and R&B singers, just joking about how he would rob them (laughs) in creative ways. It does get attention. Before I even knew who 50 Cent was, I remember Jay-Z rapping, I'm all about a dollar, what the fuck is 50 Cent? Go against Jigga, your ass is dense. I'm about a dollar, what the fuck is 50 Cent? For some reason, people did take the bait, even though it's like a transparently ridiculous song. It's kind of a bit meaner than ludicrous would be. It's kind of like the kid in high school who- Is a bully? I don't know if I would say bully, but he definitely- villain perhaps yeah he gets a little personal with some of them I, I still think it's pretty lighthearted. so he gets signed by columbia through the track masters who are producers in this hip-hop army pop world and he records an album called power of the dollar he's gonna be a normal rapper and a few days before he's gonna film a video with destiny's child for a song off the album he gets shot in the face nine times as we all know as integral to the story as anything mm-hmm. and yeah he gets dropped from Columbia, but the song that probably triggered the shooting is one I want to talk about. He has a song called Ghetto Quran that was going to be on that album. It was a single that came out where he, in extreme detail, tells stories of the Queen's drug trade, mm. 80s and 90s, naming names, bodyguards' names, down to the guy who was owning the corner store or whatever. He really crosses the street code, essentially, with this song, and it's in all likelihood what ended up with him being shot and probably should have been killed. But the amazing thing about the song is that the hook is this just arresting, soulful, softly sung, kind of mournful hook in the same way that a lot of the qualities that we're talking about with Nelly, yeah. 50 has that from the beginning, an unprecedented ability to be the hardest, most provocative street bully, but his melodic sense and his ability to carry that vocally was just really, really there. His persona would never really let him get to a real softness, but he really has like a tenderness, a softness to his singing voice when he wants to. That was really effective for a time. And on this song, Gato Quran, that contrast is incredible. And his ability to do all that in one package is 
what made him one of the most massive rap stars ever, basically. It's interesting to think what you're talking about in terms of the dynamics between his singing voice and the rap and the hard rapping, because I think of 50 Cent as this gruff, uber mask gangster rapper, essentially. But the truth of the matter is that a lot of what made him work are a lot of the things that the rappers in the post-50 era built off of. Kanye being a really good example of this, and obviously Drake, who keeps coming up here, Future, all of these rappers that combine melody and rapping. Like, I think 50, as you're pointing out here, and amongst many of the other people we're talking about today, he really was like a singer in this weird way. And I think that he almost didn't let himself fully embody the innovation of that because he was so busy being concerned with his credibility, in a sense. Yeah, you know, in a certain sense, the way to access rap stardom at this level was to maintain your street credibility while also being credible as a pop star. And like the fact that he had been shot nine times in the face or whatever in upper torso face area <laughs> was so central to the story. You knew that obviously the Get Richard Diet try and cover, you see it through a bullet hole. He really cultivated this superhuman persona. Like he can't even be shot down by nine bullets. Right. But again, he can soften all that up. And if you didn't know anything about the persona, just the vocal tone in its own way, he doesn't have a great voice. No, but that adds to the appeal, I think, in a certain sense. His desire to sing, even though he can't really sing, is part of what makes those affecting, I think. Yeah, and 50 Cent not a person who acts like he has a soul, but he could access soulfulness in his own way. So he gets dropped by Columbia, obviously one of the biggest record labels. After he gets shot, he gets dropped. And there was real violent shit happening between him and Ja Rule. Jam Master J gets shot in the head. It probably related to all of this in 50 Cent in particular. Right. It was real serious violence. He gets dropped by Columbia and he records mixtapes to get himself back out there. And that's how he got back on. That's how he got the attention of Eminem, who eventually gets him signed to Dre. Eminem loved those 50 Cent albums and 50 Cent's persona and Eminem's persona we get why they would kind of get along. Right. So Dre signs him. Wankster is on the 8 Mile soundtrack, which is his first breakthrough hit. Hey. You say you a gangster, but you never pop nothing. You say you a gangster, and you need to stop fighting. And he releases Get Rich or Die Trying, which some have called the most anticipated rap debut in the decade or of that decade or in a decade. Probably ever, going back to what we were saying earlier about how there just wasn't really a blueprint. We hadn't really seen rap stardom at this level in this way before right. it was new. This landed like a fucking juggernaut. I mean, it sold like almost a million copies in its first week. This is like Michael Jackson shit. And what's funny is he's kind of like the actual hardest of all of these four guys. He's the most linked back to the rap of the mid-90s, I think, than almost any of these people are. So it's interesting that the guy with the biggest edge, I guess, in this mix is actually the person that has the hugest commercial impact on impact, essentially. Yeah, you're explaining why he was so special. To be able to embody those two qualities was just really unique. And the fact that he hooks up with Dre is not inconsequential because obviously Dre produces in the club and... Dre is obviously just a legendary rap figure and like that cosine mattered that obviously that beats incredible. And if you listen to Power of the Dollar, the 50s album for Columbia that never came out, it's kind of what you would expect for post bad boy melodic rap. Right. But the Dre beats that he gets are something completely different. They are skyscraper beats. This song is just unreal. Yeah. I mean, if you could like imagine the Terminator as a rap beat, you know, that's kind of what in the club is. <laughs> Me 
I mean, it's so interesting, the simplicity of this song. And also I think it does sort of share the sing-songiness of some of the hooks of these records. I mean, of Country Grammar, for instance. This song does have like a bit of a patty cake, patty cake yeah. hook to it. For sure. He starts <laughs> off singing, you know, it's your birthday, you know? Yeah. Go show it's your birthday. We're gonna party like it's your birthday. We're gonna sip a party like it's your birthday. And you know we don't give a fuck if that's your birthday. He was very much the same way Nelly does with country grammar and finding that kind of childish melody and just flipping it. And then you've got the flip side again, the R&B rap crossover Lothario on 21 Questions. That's like 50s attempt to make one of those records, like a Jaw song almost in some ways. Exactly. Would you love me if I was down? And how would you still have love for me? If I fell off tomorrow, would you still love me? If I didn't smell so good, would you still hug me? He's not as funny or as charming as Nell, you're ludicrous. And he's not as great of a rapper as they are either. I think he's a much different rapper. I wouldn't argue with someone who said 50 Cent was the best rapper. But yeah, he's not necessarily like a clever lyricist. Even though he is kind of like a pest and a bully, he's not yeah. particularly funny. He's kind of scary. I mean, he kind of is like menacing, I find, like a sneering menace. Yeah, for sure. Would you like feel comforted by the 50 Cent persona that he projected on his other songs? No. And that mm. kind of comes through on the song. Nonetheless, we all love the song and it's like a great classic track, but it's really the Nate Dogg hook does a lot of the work. Yeah. He has this thing where he makes fucking him sound scary. When I was listening to like Magic Stick, another hit from this era, I just kept thinking like he makes flirting and sex with him sound sort of terrifying and like menacing in this way. I'm a freak to the core. Get a dose once, you gon' want some more. My tongue touch a girl, your toes bound to curl. This exclusive stick, I don't share with the world. I had your girl in the morning, morning. Back shot, crap with a low can't stop. There's no sexy, fun 50 cent song. <laughs> so this record is huge, obviously. In the Club is one of the biggest songs of all time. 21 Questions is a huge hit. If I Can't, another yeah. Dr. Dre classic. P.I.M.P. God, I loved P.I.M.P. so much. Like a kind of Caribbean vibe to it. No Cadillac, no perms you can't see. Then I'm a motherfucking P.I.M.P. The success of this record launches him to launch G-Unit, which has its own series of hits, Want to Get to Know You and Stunt What I Want. Want to Get to Know You, what a great song. Oh my God, I love that song so much. Yeah, I mean, that song's another one where it's like a sample as the beat, R&B song. Yes, Marvin Gaye, Come Live With Me, Angel. <laughs> Me up more watching a lick of lips uh -huh. or watching a walk. She hypnotized me with her hips, man. Yeah, and you have to open up multiple Wikipedia pages to actually understand how omnipresent between G Unit and 50 Cent and the game, he was just fucking everywhere. I know, it was insane. He had so many hits. I mean, Want to Get to Know You, Stunt 101, these G-Unit hits that are not really remembered that much yeah. anymore, but these were huge. And the Lloyd Banks songs, the Young Buck songs, I mean, all these songs. Exactly. Everyone in the crew gets famous. And this is all happening within like a two or three year period. It's wild. There had not been a rap star like this. There probably hasn't been one since in terms of what he did in that period. Obviously, as we're about to talk about, it almost ends right about here yeah. in some ways, but 
it's crazy. The places he was coming from, the amount of ways that you would hear him and his king making ability, like he deemed something important and, and it was. And a lot of the songs are great, by the way, we should say. Like you're saying, Wanna Get to He's oh, Great. Yeah. Some of those Gina songs are great. A lot of it was pretty good. I agree. I mean, I think of everybody that we're talking about today, the key is emblematic of what I was trying to get at with this episode, which is he was the biggest fucking star in the planet, period. Not just the biggest rapper. I mean, in 03, 04, 05, there was nobody bigger. He was so no. huge in a way that we would peg in more classic sense to more traditional pop stars. It's just so emblematic of how central being a hip hop star had come to being a pop star. Like there was no difference at that point, I guess. He's the artist that I think walks that in the way that I was sort of conceiving of when I thought of this episode most clearly. Yeah, people might not remember that Beyonce did like a remix of In The Club. And that was on the radio as much as any Beyonce hit from that time period. Yeah. He was the biggest, really, essentially this entire episode, everything builds up and crescendos right now. <laughs> everything from now forward is the downhill, but yeah. this is the peak of yeah. what all this was leading up to. I mean, even going back to the beginning of rap history, it all peaks in terms of the pop aspect of it here. So he drops his second record in 2005, The Massacre. The canonical singles from this to me are the two Scott short songs, Candy Shop and Just a Little Bit, which are very similar to one another. Both kind of play in that same menacing sexuality. Yeah, you know, you want to talk about selling out. I mean, these are yeah. the type of songs that you think of. Even at the time, I think we weren't fooled by these. They reflect as chart hits and they were on the radio. Obviously, there was some mass market appeal to them. But yeah. if you were like a real fan of 50 Cent, I would say you probably were like, this isn't it. And we kept getting it. I was reading one of Tom Bryan's number one columns about 50. You know, he's basically like 50 could have as we're saying, been this uniquely huge Biggie-esque figure if he had continued in the vein of what he was doing on the first album. Right. Unfortunately, he just goes for the shit that's going to sell the most, which if you know what he said now is not that shocking. But at the time, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is a guy who's like a huge part of his legacy is investing in vitamin water. The fact yeah. that he like becomes a sellout is kind of a part and parcel to what we know now. If it, he wanted the fucking money. And he got it, but I think it cost him legacy-wise and pantheon-wise and all this. And longevity-wise, they were cash grabs in the moment, but these songs didn't set him up exactly for a longer career, because as we're going to get at, like, the massacre was huge. Yeah. He obviously launches the game, you know, How We Do and Hate It or Love It. Hate or Love It, probably the most indelible song from the quote-unquote middle period of 50s <laughs> or whatever. I do want to say that Disco Inferno kind of a bop. Yeah. I think I remember that one being like, okay, he kind of got away yeah. with this one. But like, it's actually objectively indefensible for 50 Cent to ever release a song called Disco Inferno. Like from that no. point, everyone should have been like, no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Nonetheless, it is a good song. <laughs> They were 
were huge, Jordan. Those legs are so fucking big, though. Disco Inferno, candy shop, just a little bit. Oh, my God. And yeah, from there, I mean, he has Get Rich or Die Try in the movie. And the soundtrack comes out. Oh, God, and there's right. some great songs on that. Hustler's Ambition, Window Shopper. Right. Like, he was still making good rap songs when he wanted to. It's just like he really went for the Marvel movie every time, which eventually... I mean, the funny thing about 50 Cent and Ja Rule is that people turn on them for the same reason. Right. He got obsessed with ending Ja Rule. And as we mentioned earlier, he ended Ja Rule in the course of this whole thing. Yeah, he did. And they end up in the same place. Right. They end up in the same place. And by 2007, he releases his third album, Curtis, which is really fascinating. I mean, it's not a good album at all, but it has two last gasp moments, one of which is great and memorable. And one of which, what I think of as kind of the end of this whole period for all of these guys, you have I Get Money, which is a great classic throwback 50 mm-hmm. kind of diss track, basically, right? <laughs> Yeah. Pour the water, sold it in bottles for two bucks The Coca-Cola came and bought it for beans What the fuck? Have a baby by me, baby Be a millionaire, I write the check before the baby comes Who the fuck cares? And then you've got AO Technology, like 50 Cent making a post-Future Sex Love Sound, Timberland, Justin Timberlake hook, like something that Mr. Street Cred from Get Rich or Die Trying probably never would have dreamed of making a song with Justin Timberlake. I really, really can't say enough about how much I despise this song. Okay, so I kind of love it until 50 Cent comes on, but like, it's still giving me, I wouldn't even say Future Sex, but it's more like the Timbaland solo project era where like- Right, shock value. Yeah, exactly. Like it's giving some of that and give it to me. Like it's kind of in that vein, but the 50 Cent parts are not good. It's so not native territory for 50 Cent. It's such an obvious attempt at 50 to like try to find yeah. the pop zeitgeist that's not comfortable for him anymore. Let's get it poppin' so that we can switch positions. From the couch to the counters in my kitchen. Maybe you're so new age, you like my new craze. Yeah, I mean, you could feel the desperation. I mean, you could feel it in real time. You could feel him grasping in this period. And the thing about Curtis that really matters is that the whole thing is a showdown with Kanye. Right. Which is ridiculous because Kanye is way bigger at that point. He's way better. I should say for people who don't know, Graduation and Curtis come out on the same day and it becomes this whole thing. They're on the cover of Rolling Stone looking at each other like it's before a boxing match. And they represent very different things. 50 represents the old guard machismo gangster rapper and Kanye at this point represents this new brand of rapper who's self-reflective and doesn't come from a drug dealing background is thoughtful and emotional on record and all of these different things there's deeper meaning to what this means and the the transition of power in hip-hop culture at this moment as well exactly and again by that point it was already clear it wasn't actually a suspenseful moment so in a way the baton or whatever had already been passed but this was the huge signifying moment where the new boxer punches out the old champion or whatever the case even though the old champion at this point is like the equivalent of like a 65 year old boxer we all knew who was going down in this one but yeah no i mean that's the memorable part about curtis i mean the music is not very memorable i mean when you think about a song like stronger the ambition of a song like that and like the ability for kanye to like fluently incorporate elements of daft punk into his hip-hop aesthetic or whatever and then you think about a song like ao technology where 50 feels completely out of his depth yeah it's just says everything about what was changing in music at this time. I think not just for 50, but for all of these guys, there was massive changes happening both in pop and in hip hop in the late 2000s that I think were part of why none of these guys really got out of it fully. Pop was moving to like full on 120 BPM dance floor music and hip hop was moving into the Kanye and eventually into the Drake arena. And that was kind of the end of it for all four of these guys in a certain sense. For sure. And I think even before the Kanye Drake, 
thing, Little Wayne happens. And right. as he starts to get to what he becomes, he calls himself the best rapper alive. And he, more than anyone, returns rap back to lyricism and that kind of rapping. You know, there's a bit of a turn away from this real popness. Again, Little Wayne with his mixtapes, we kind of return a bit to the more of like the real essence of rap. And even as they become rap stars, right. Little Wayne is still always thought of as an MC first. So I think there is a turning away from that popness as well and to the lyricism. And then obviously what you're saying with Kanye, who has a vision to change rap and he does, and then Drake and all this stuff. If you had to say, I know this is like a broad question, but what do you think is the legacy of this era of rappers and of these four guys? Where do we see the effect of what these guys were doing in the pop and rap that's come after them? Anything we haven't mentioned yet, I guess. I think that we're in a period right now where this style of crossover song is dead. You don't really need to cross over in the same way anymore because of streaming. There's never been a Little Dirt crossover song. There's never been a Little Baby crossover song. They don't need them. Yeah, just like there's not a Morgan Wallen crossover song or a Luke Combs <laughs> crossover song or a Bad Bunny crossover song, except for the Drake one. You just don't need to do this anymore. Yeah. It was still seen at that time in order to reach a mass audience, you had to make a certain kind of song. Mm. That doesn't exist anymore, really. We actually really see it more in the reverse now in terms of pop stars who look to rappers for verses. And we kind of expect with our rhythmic pop music now to kind of hear a rap verse. You know, it's hard to picture California girls without Snoop Dogg on it. Right. We kind of see it in reverse now. I think rappers still have that cachet. They still have the edge. And from like a music perspective, I've sat in meetings where, you know, you have to come up with what's the rapper who fits this part of this rhythmic pop song, like Dua Lipa and DaBaby. Right. I was trying to say it into baby's cadence. Do a leap into baby. <laughs> no, um, I got it. I got which I think that was probably the biggest one of these kind of songs up until his cancellation. That was a huge hit. And in order for that Do a Leap song to have more legs, they needed a rapper and they needed a rapper who could rap over that beat. In a sense, that almost goes back to the beginning of rap with disco and stuff. Totally. It's obviously still this kind of modern conception of what role rappers play in the pop universe. One of the greatest, ain't no debating on it. I'm still levitated, I'm heavily medicated. Ironic, I gave him love and they end up hating on me. She told me she loved me and she been waiting, been fighting. All right, let's talk about the Pantheon. Yes. Are you ready to rank these fellas in the pop Pantheon? I'm so curious what you're going to say. I have so many ideas, but A, do you think they all belong in the same tier? And B, where do you think they all belong? So I kind of wrote out some stats and stuff okay. for all these people. I'm not going to read them, but I'm just saying. For your own edification. Yeah, yeah. You know, I try to compare number one hits and top 10 singles, yada, yada. I think we also got to utilize some of our just vibes on this because they have a lot of stats but we have to also think about how do we think about them now? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm curious. Go ahead. Go forth. And also just looking at current day streaming data. Yes. So anyway, I think to me, there's one of them who falls short of the rest and that's Ja Rule. Okay. His peak was shorter. Yeah. He's obviously not really beloved anymore. He does still tour, but with Ashanti. That's kind of a package <laughs> deal. Yeah. And obviously there's the whole fire fest, but that epitomizes the punchline that he's kind of become in our culture. So for me, I had him in 4A flash in the pans. Yeah, I think you're right. Ja, I'm totally sold for, no question about it. He was almost the ultimate flash in the pan. Like he was the biggest thing in the world for like 18 months or something. He kind of embodies that. So this is not debatable. 
jaw definitely four, I think. Yeah. So the question then I think becomes whether 50 Cent separates himself from Nelly and Ludacris. I think based on the way you have it, Nelly and Luda for me fall pretty clearly into tier 3A superstars of yore. Right. These are artists with handful of number ones, Mm -hmm. dozen top tens, Mm -hmm. nine time, 10 times, seven time platinum album, half a decade peak. And as we talked about earlier, we're just like the coolest fucking people on the planet for their period of time, made a lot of great records that we all still love, still hear them out today. Obviously didn't hit a peak above that, but I think solidly superstars of your 3A for me. I think you're right. I think looking back at all of these hits, it's just like undeniable. Here's a question for you. Let's say Ludacris launches a tour in 2023. What venues is Ludacris playing at? Well, it's so funny because, you know, he's opening for Janet Jackson. Right. He's opening every day on the Janet tour, which I don't get. It's so random. I was looking at where these guys tour. Honestly, a lot of them don't really do that many shows, but you do see a lot of casinos, fairgrounds, amphitheaters, right. basically places where you can sell three to five to 6,000 tickets and just kind of out in the real America, honestly. But they're not touring arenas or selling out amphitheaters. Okay, this is like something that confuses me a little bit. How do you stack up Ludacris's run of hits versus Katy Perry's run of hits. Not in terms of like quality, but in terms of indelibility. Because it's like you look back at these Ludacris hits and you're like, damn, he had a lot of fucking hits. Yeah. And when we think about runs of pop hits, do we think about it in the same way, even if in an unfair sense? No, I, I don't. And I think with him in particular, because of the lack of popness in his music, right? rap has moved in such a different direction. Yeah. Sonically, street rap is really different from what Ludacris was doing. So he's not really like an influence in modern day rap necessarily some guys i won't go into it necessarily but there is some punchlines happening around guys like no cap and stuff like this but because of that he doesn't really come up in a pop context or a rap context anymore so i feel like he's kind of forgotten that's why i'm sort of like does Ludacris belong in tier four even though he's got so many hits yeah he never had massive albums he was never that kind of artist he's still also famous outside of music i don't know if that counts in any of the criteria but he's a celebrity figure like i don't know if Ludacris and katie perry belong in this same tier of the pop pantheon. That's what I'm sort of struggling with. I think Katy Perry's imprint feels huger on pop music to me than Ludacris's does long term in terms of music. Yeah. Ludacris was always such a fish out of water to begin with. Yeah. Like he was so different from the rest of these guys anyway that it's kind of not surprising that his influence isn't felt so much. I do think visually, musically, I kind of think of pop pantheon as encompassing all the aspects. And you've talked right. about this of being a pop star. When I think of that era of music videos, Ludacris Chris had iconic fucking videos. It's true. It's true. Okay. I feel good about Ja in four. Ludacris, I'm like teetering on the four to three thing. Okay. You think 50 could also be in four? No, I had him clearly as a 3A superstars of your 50's clear three to me. I have written down floating in between two megastar. I don't think he could quite get to megastar reading your criteria. I think 50 is three for sure. He was so fucking big. And there's some parts of him, like could he be referred to just by 50 or whatever, where he still kind of endures in that way. But ultimately his peak in the music doesn't really get to two. I kind of think of all of the artists we talked about today, he was the one that I felt could have maybe had his own episode. Yeah, I would agree with that. So I think 50, definitely three. Yeah. Jaw, definitely four. Nelly and Ludacris... To me, I had Nelly and Ludacris as one grouping together yeah. with Ja Rule below them in 50 Cent. Not in the tier above them, but still above them in their own tier together. I feel like Nelly and Ludacris are cuspy four to three to me. I think when you look at Ludacris 
what he put up in terms of the charts. Yeah. He has a lot of platinum records. You're right. Albums, singles. So to me, it pushes that into superstars of Yore. And I think he was a superstar of Yore, even though what you're saying about his influence and stuff is definitely correct. But his ability to persist on these Bieber singles and stuff like that. Yeah. He had a length to his career, like we said earlier, that the rest of these guys really did not. And Nelly, too, has had like a pretty long thing. True. You're right. Exactly. And kind of succeeding in a similar way. And had such huge, those albums were so fucking gigantic. I felt good about Luda in tier three. So we're putting the three of them in three and John four, basically. I think that feels right to me. All right. I'll take it. So last question before yes. we go to bed and Pop Pantheon After Hours comes to a close. <laughs> What's an underrated song by one of these guys that you want to send the podcast out on? So the song that I want to send us out on, I wanted to go with something really true to what we were talking about in this episode, but something we didn't mention. And that is a Ja Rule song that ah, was... I did not see this coming. The lead single from The Last Temptation, which was his fourth album. There's a formulaicness to what Ja Rule was doing. And on this song, he pairs himself with someone who breaks that formula like a shoe through a pane of glass and brings a frisson and an energy and a wildness to this man's music that I love. So I want us to play Thug Lovin' Ja Rule featuring Bobby Brown, which is a song that I fucking love. Great hook. You have to watch the video because Bobby Brown comes leaping out of a helicopter onto the helipad. Thug Lovin, Ja Rule, Bobby Brown. Great fucking song that we didn't mention. So let's do that one. Okay, let's go out on Thug Lovin by Ja Rule and Bobby Brown. Jordan Sargent, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thanks, man. All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon, Jaw Rule, Nelly, Ludacris, 50 Cent. We have Jaw Rule in Tier 4, Luda, Nelly, and 50 in Tier 3. The judgment is rendered. I want to say a big thank you to the wonderful Jordan Sargent for being such an incredible guest. I want to thank Russ Martin for everything he does to make this podcast happen every week, and to PJ Brunetti for his help editing this episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ LOUIEXIV on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to come out to Gorgeous Gorgeous, it is March 25th at Resident and DTLA. The tickets are in the show notes of this episode. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.